Hello all, and thanks again for listening to the Saga of World War II, A Cassus Belly Project. In this episode, we continue the war on the Eastern Front... kind of. This is an episode of Digressions and Tangents. The war on the Eastern Front is so vast and expansive that it touches on a lot of other subjects, and this kind of just ended up being an all-things Soviet Union episode. So it kind of meanders in a few different directions. I've gotten some great feedback from some of you lately, which is greatly appreciated. And thanks to you, the podcast has a five-star rating on iTunes. Again, if you have any input or corrections or just think I missed something, don't hesitate to email me at cassisbellyguy at gmail.com. Okay, let's begin episode 13, Germania Dolenda Est. Frankly and definitely, there is danger ahead. Danger against which we must prepare. defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. Now that Stalin had recovered his nerve, it was time to get to the business of actually, you know, fighting the war. Of course, being who he was as a person, the first thing Stalin did was find some generals to make scapegoats and execute them. But, rather than spiraling into a self-destructive purge, he actually began to reform the Red Army. The theater was divided into three commands. Northwestern Command, under Marshal Voroshilov, covered Leningrad and the Baltic states. Southwest Commanded, by Marshal Budeni, encompassed Ukraine and Stalingrad. And lastly, Western, under Timoshenko, was protecting Moscow itself. Then he dedicated himself to prosecuting the war. Every waking moment he spent either in his war room or on the phone with commanders. The same traits that made him so menacing a political foe made him a deadly warlord, and he fully embraced the role of Generalissimo. He ran an effective headquarters from the Kremlin, even after the bulk of the Soviet government moved east, deep into Siberia. He held conferences with his staff three times a day. There was always a morning call after 9 a.m., an afternoon call around 4 or 5, and then a face-to-face meeting at 9 p.m. that could last well into the night. Stalin had effectively created what is referred to as a battle rhythm in modern armies. The nightly meetings were held in Stalin's enormous office overlooking the Moscow River. There, he and his commanders would spend hours hovering over the giant map of western Russia and meticulously pouring over orders to the front. As he and his lieutenants discussed strategy, he would periodically refill his pipe, never allowing it to go cold. On the walls hung portraits of Suvorov and Kuzutsov, the two great Russian generals of the 18th century. It might seem a little strange that Stalin aimed to idolize Tsarist generals, but the idea was to frame the war not as one between fascism and communism, but as a class of civilizations. The barbaric Germans against the stoic and hardy Russians in a great patriotic war as happens to be the name for the Second World War in Russia. 
After hours of planning and writing, the orders would finally go out, always ending with death to the German invader. Stalin's take on Cato the Elder's infamous Carthago Delenda Est, Carthage must be destroyed. Opposite Stalin, Hitler had moved his headquarters further east. He would command his forces from the Wolf's Lair, near the East Prussian town of Rustenburg, once a Teutonic stronghold. The Wolf's Lair was essentially a huddle of cottages over a bunker surrounded by a mine wire obstacle in the Pine Barrens. A far cry from Stalin's office in Red Square. By the first week of July, the advance was still moving steadily toward the rising sun. Some seven score Soviet divisions had been destroyed, of the 200 or so that the Germans expected to encounter, and 500,000 men had been captured. The Wehrmacht was slowly realizing that there were far more Russians in the field than they had expected, and was grinding on their advance. By August, 160 additional Soviet divisions had been identified. The Russians were fielding massive numbers of men. The broad front also served to stretch the German armies thinner and thinner, while allowing encircled units to strike at their rear. Hitler was obsessed with taking Stalingrad and Leningrad. Despite his desire for decisive battle, he seemed unable to identify the Schwerpunkt, the decisive point. He believed that by taking the two major cities in the south and the north, he could deliver such a massive blow that the Soviet Union would roll over. Perhaps he should have focused more on destroying enemy maneuver units. For the time being, it wasn't clear that the question needed to be answered, though. German units were still pushing the front line further ahead. In Army Group Center, Guderian and Hoth were having massive success. By July 1st, they were crossing the Beretzina and pushing on Minsk. They were setting the conditions for the final push to Moscow, and they would spend the month of July doing just that. From Minsk, they diverged once again to make a pincer attack on Smolensk. The drive was the toughest either Panzer Group had experienced thus far. Not only did they have to secure their rear to prevent Russian breakout from their encirclement, but they had to contend for the first time with the infamous T-34. So I suppose now is a good time to divert from the narrative a little bit and talk about Soviet tank theory and Soviet-Japanese conflict leading up to the war. The T-34 was born out of the Red Army's need to replace its antiquated reconnaissance and infantry support tanks, namely the BT-7. Though they were quick and traveled well across rough terrain, they simply could not hold their own against even light resistance. They had gasoline engines that made the tanks veritable tinderboxes. Additionally, light armament and armor rendered them useless in an actual tank-on-tank -tank battle. All of this the Soviets learned the hard way in the various border skirmishes with the Japanese that took place during the 1930s. Now, I don't want to get into the weeds with the Japanese activities in Manchuria because we'll cover that around episode 17 or so, but a quick overview should do. As the Japanese expanded their mainland empire throughout the 30s, their territory, and that of their puppet state, Manchukuo, began to jut up against Soviet territory and that of their satellite, Mongolia. Russo-Japanese relations remained as dismal as they were at the conclusion of the Russo-Japanese War in 1905, resulting in frequent border clashes. From there, the Japanese sought to take advantage of the Russian Revolution in 1917, and in the ensuing years, occupied much of eastern Siberia. By the late 1930s, though, the Soviet Union had retaken many of the Russian Empire's former holdings. After establishing their old borders, Red Army patrols often moved through Manchuria to reconnoiter Japanese positions, but the Japanese instigated countless skirmishes themselves throughout the decade. The renegade Kwangtung Army being responsible for many of these. 
The border disputes would climax with the battles of Lake Kassan and Kolkengol. The Battle of Lake Kassan took place over the course of about two weeks from the end of July 1938 to early August 1939. The Japanese believed the Russians had intentionally misrepresented the borders of a treaty signed with the former Qing dynasty and launched an incursion to seize the land from the Soviets. The Japanese 19th Division crossed the border and drove off the Soviet garrison. In the preceding days, they occupied and reinforced their positions before the Red Army could counterattack and attempted to throw them off. As the Russians reorganized, they accumulated hundreds of tanks. Though the Japanese were now greatly outnumbered, they demonstrated their knack for tenacious defense. Knowing that the Russians would be throwing hundreds of tanks at them, they designed sinister anti-tank defenses. When the Red Army finally did launch themselves at the defenders, they suffered painful losses. Not only were the tank crews ill-trained, but the attack was poorly coordinated. These failures were compounded by the fact that the Soviet tanks were extremely thin-skinned and had very weak guns. After inflicting roughly 4,000 casualties and destroying nearly 50 tanks, the Japanese sued for peace, knowing the Russians would simply keep coming until they were dislodged. The Japanese Imperial forces withdrew from the area and the Red Army occupied their former positions. The next major engagement was the Battle of Kalkingol. In a vein similar to the Battle of Lake Kassan, this battle was fought over a border dispute. However, this seemingly inconsequential battle in the backwaters of two second-rate empires, in the Eurocentric point of view of the West anyway, would end up being one of the most influential of a war it was ostensibly not even a part of. The Japanese considered the border to lie along the Kalkan River, or as the Russians maintained the border several miles east at the village of Namenhat. So, when a Mongolian cavalry troop marched too far east to graze their horses on May 11, 1939, the Japanese used this as a pretext to instigate a skirmish. They drove off the Mongolians with their cavalry and established a position around the village, pushing the front line to the Kalkan Gol. Two days later, the Mongols attempted to repulse the Japanese but failed. For the next several weeks, the front solidified and both sides began to husband their forces. The Japanese pulled in 30,000 troops from the region and deployed them along the river to reinforce their position. Meanwhile, the Russians gathered 50,000 men, 216 field guns, and nearly 500 armored vehicles. To lead this force, the Red Army sent a little-known corps commander who had evaded the purges by staying in the Far East, Georgi Zhukov. By the end of June 1939, hostilities in the East had resumed and a series of small battles would take place along the river as each side jockeyed for position. The Japanese launched two large-scale assaults on Russian positions in June and July, but failed to make any significant gains. As August turned to September, the Kuangtung army was preparing another offensive when Zhukov unleashed his forces in a massive counterattack. On August 20th, at 5 a.m., 200 Soviet bombers littered the Japanese positions with high explosive. This was followed by a massive three-hour artillery barrage, followed by yet another bombing run. Finally, over 50,000 men and 500 tanks poured over the Kalkan Gol toward the shattered Japanese soldiers. Zhukov massed his infantry in the center, where he tied down the defenders. On the flanks, he sent his tanks on Mongolian cavalry. They easily rolled over the lightly armed Japanese defenders and a race towards the village of Namenhan. After arriving at the village, the follow-on infantry consolidated their gains and encircled the defending Japanese. The Japanese 23rd Division, which had been holding the line, was effectively destroyed by September 1st, 
when the Japanese and Russian leadership met to negotiate peace. They agreed that the border would revert to the status quo ante at the Soviet line. As a result of the battle, Zhukov was awarded Hero of the Soviet Union and promoted to General. Additionally, the battle marked the end of the Japanese incursions into Soviet Asia. Instead, they would focus their efforts on Western colonial holdings in the South. For the Soviet Union, the absence of a Japanese threat in the East meant they no longer had to maintain large garrisons there, resulting in 15 infantry divisions, 1,700 tanks, and 1,500 aircraft being shipped west. Another result for the Russians was the realization that they needed a new main battle tank. The small, light BT-7s that had done the heavy lifting against the Japanese had done the trick, but proved too fragile. Thus, the T-34 was born. Mikhail Koshkin had been developing a new medium tank for the Red Army for years, and after the experience of the army in 1938 and 1939, incorporated those lessons learned. It boasted an impressive 76mm gun and thick, sloped armor that proved much more resilient than the thin-skinned predecessors. Koshkin switched over to using diesel instead of gasoline to make their tanks less susceptible to Molotov cocktails. He also incorporated welded joints as opposed to rivets to prevent spalling, in which the rivets broke off and bounced around the inside of the tank, killing the crew. Despite the much larger size of the T-34, Soviet engineers made sure it was still fast enough to operate on the large battlefields of the Russian steppe, giving it a top speed of 35 miles per hour. With these features, the T-34 was not only better armed and armored than the Panzer III, but also faster. Of course the tank wasn't perfect. It was usually manufactured hastily to rush it to the front, and only command vehicles had radios, making them difficult to control. Worse, the crews were poorly trained, and didn't know how to properly employ their vehicles in the early war. Despite this, it was probably the best tank of the war, at least in 1941. Even Field Marshal von Kleist held up a grudging respect for it, and he himself believed it superior to his own panzers. Yes, the Germans would go on to develop super-heavy tanks that were wonders of engineering, like the infamous King Tiger, but the T-34 was a much more practical weapon. It had the grit of many famous Soviet weapons, like the later-developed AK-47. It was a soldier's weapon, made to survive and to just keep on trucking. It didn't need to be coddled and just rolled with the punches. In their first engagement with one, the German advance was held up for five hours, and five Panzer III's were destroyed. On July 29th, with Smolensk being rolled up, Hitler's adjutant arrived at Guderian's headquarters with new direction from the Wolf's Lair. Moscow was no longer the primary objective. Guderian was instructed to halt his advance. By this time, the advance along the entire front was beginning to slow, and the bodies were beginning to arrive back in Germany. Everyone knew by now that this wasn't another Poland or France, and that the three-month victory was becoming less and less likely. The backwardness of Russian infrastructure was compounding itself as well. Units slowed to a halt after the briefest of rain showers, as roads became mud, and the broad front of the advance forced some elements to fight through complete wilderness. The Russians capitalized on this by placing minefields and heavily fortifying choke points. They would set ambushes on key crossing points like bridges or marshland roads, forcing the Germans to cross only at night. Any man who attempted to move straight through the bog got sucked in and hopelessly thrashed about until he succumbed to exhaustion. With casualties mounting, reserves and replacements had to be brought forward. Trainloads of men streamed forward, packed 40 men to a car. 
The logistical effort to get men to the front was a bare-bones affair. The replacements were herded like cattle into boxcars with no facilities. Men relieved themselves out the side or waited for a halt to dump out and drop their trousers. Oftentimes, starving Poles would flood the trains, begging for food, only to be greeted by hundreds of defecating German soldiers. When the train whistle blew, men finished off their business and ran to catch up with the train and jump back on. This continued for days or weeks until they finally reached the German-occupied Russia. When the replacements reached the end of the line, they disembarked and began walking toward the front. Because Russia used a different railroad scale, German trains couldn't go any further than the borders, and logistics networks within Russia were already at their limit. As the reinforcements marched east, they encountered hundreds of thousands of prisoners marching west. The German soldiers would have certainly been struck by the appearance and stench of the captured men. They were filthy, emaciated, and reeked of acetone. Their bodies had long entered into full starvation mode and consumed their body fat. Their bodies were now metabolizing protein, producing the awful stench. The guards had little sympathy for their prisoners. The most assistance they would offer was to shoot a scavenging dog so the captives could eat it. The invasion was seeing its greatest success on its left flank, where von Lieb's army group north advanced halfway to its ultimate objective, Leningrad, in a mere five days. The army was significantly aided by the fact that there was effectively no Soviet military presence in the Baltic region. Remember, Stalin had been confident that Hitler would not invade, and so did not prepare for it. Once Army Group North shattered the initial defenses in Lithuania, there wasn't much else. Due to the aforementioned problems and the delays experienced by Army Group Center, it would not be until September that von Lieb finally reached the city's outskirts. They would have to contend with the as-of-yet unconstructed Luga line, however. Eventually, some sense of order was restored, and the Soviet commanders began to figure out how they were going to salvage the situation. Leningrad was intended to be a mighty fortress, much like Singapore. However, it was a naval fortress, extremely vulnerable to a land attack. All the big guns pointed north, toward the sea and Finland. No one had considered that the city might be threatened from the southwest. The delays in reaching Leningrad allowed the city to prepare itself for siege. The military and civilian population spent the months of July and August fortifying the city with tank traps, infantry fighting positions, and trenches. Roughly 30,000 residents of Leningrad volunteered for the civilian workforce in the first weeks of the war. <coughs> Zadanov, the Leningrad Commissar, led the city in preparing for battle. Zadanov had once been a close confidant of Stalin, but in the lead-up to the German invasion, he had fallen out of favor and was sent off to Leningrad. Upon arriving, it seems he might have entered a bit of malaise and went to vacation in Sochi the day before the invasion began. Upon returning in July, however, he realized the dire situation his city was in. He sent the volunteers out, directed by army sappers, to prepare the defenses. He focused their efforts on the Luga River, 75 miles southwest of the city. There, they established an outer ring from which to hold back the German war machine. They worked in harsh conditions, with little food or shelter, and suffered under frequent bombardment by the Luftwaffe, but they managed to do the job. Next, Zidanov evacuated the city's 400,000 children to the countryside to protect them from the expected German bombardment. He loaded them onto train cars and dispersed them throughout the countryside which in turn led to many of them dying in Luftwaffe strafing runs on the trains. The great cultural artifacts needed to be removed as well. 
They were assembled in a 22-car train protected by anti-aircraft cars and pulled by two locomotives out of the city to the east. Most importantly, though, Zidanev mobilized the city's factories. Industrial plants were converted to produce artillery pieces, mortars, ammunition, and hand grenades. Countless gallons of gasoline and vodka went into stocking up on Molotov cocktails. The entire citizenry was actively engaged in preparation for war. Any able body not working on the city's outer defenses worked 11-hour shifts in the factories, followed by several hours of fortifying. What panic had overtaken the city in the first days of the war eventually gave way to stoic acceptance. Everything that could be got was already hoarded from bread to vodka to wood for stoves. Now the population set itself to ensuring their survival. It was time well spent. As the Wehrmacht barreled forward, it cast aside the disorganized and demoralized Red Army. To call it a retreat is generous. It was much more accurately called a rout. At times, the retrograding soldiers had to fight with fleeing civilians for space on the roads, and discontented citizens of the recently conquered Baltic states used this as an opportunity to get some revenge on the Russians. They would harass and generally irritate the Soviet columns as they moved north and east. By mid-July, Northwest Front, a front in Soviet parlance being the equivalent of an army group, had retreated over 300 miles. It had lost half of its men, all of its aircraft, and the vast majority of its big guns. Whole divisions had been reduced to the size of a single brigade. At the Luga line, General Pyatyshev decided he needed to fill his ranks, and so pressed the volunteer workers into service. What they lacked in training and equipment, these young men made up for an esprit de corps. Every one of them knew this was a fight for their home. They marched to the front singing in joyous choruses, and as they passed through villages, their residents gave them what vodka and sausage they had left. They were horribly ill-prepared for combat, though. They had absolutely zero military training, and many lacked weapons. Despite this, they would prove themselves against the Germans. The defense orchestrated by Pyatyshev and aided by Zadanov was heroic and successful. It delayed the German army for a whole month, but it would not hold. On August 8th, the Germans unleashed a furious artillery bombardment, followed by a massive panzer thrust. The untrained, ill-equipped Russian soldiers fell before the rolling tanks like popsicle sticks. Before long, a 10-mile-wide gap had been opened in the Luga line, and German tanks poured through. Most of the Soviet troops retreated east, thereby clearing the way to Leningrad. During the next three weeks, von Lieb used what troops had not been diverted to the drive on Moscow to slowly encircle the city. By the end of the month, Leningrad was almost completely encircled, and when the town of Schlüsselburg was finally captured, the city was severed from the mainland. Stalin was left hopeless. He saw no way of recovering the situation, and seriously contemplated abandoning the city and scuttling the Baltic fleet. Before doing so, he decided to try one last gambit, though. He dismissed Zadanov's co-commander, Voroshilov, and replaced him with Georgi Zhukov. There were no illusions about how Zhukov intended to conduct the defense of Leningrad. It would be relentless, bloody, and chaotic. What the Russians lacked in technical and tactical proficiency, they had to make up for in pure tenacity. To effect this, Zhukov stated, quote, If you retreat, I will kill you. If I retreat without orders, you kill me. End quote. In addition, this would not be a static defense. He intended to try and beat back the Germans at every turn. Every man and unit was expected to attack at every opportunity, 
to never allow the Germans to gain the initiative. Incarnating his modus operandi were the Katyusha rockets, otherwise known as Stalin's organs. These massive, multi-barreled rocket launchers were absolutely terrifying. They belched rockets a dozen at a time, sending them screeching towards the enemy, then saturating the target area with high explosive. When the direct attack on Leningrad began in September, the Germans became bogged down in the rings of defenses arrayed around the city, and the Finnish invasion from the north halted as soon as it encountered any real resistance. A further obstacle in front of von Lieb was the attack on Moscow. His troops were constantly being diverted away from his primary objective. Because Hitler had diverted men away from Moscow to Army Group South, Army Group Center was now short of men. Those shortages had to be made up for by poaching Army Group North. Despite this, the Germans pressed on Leningrad for most of September. Any time a breakthrough was possible, German artillery would concentrate on the area just ahead of it and try to exploit it, but none was ever achieved. The Russians just barely held the line. Perhaps von Lieb would have been better off just attempting to cut the city off and not throwing men at it after his panzers had been diverted. My Monday morning quarterbacking tells me that creating a sort of Verdun-like meat grinder for the Russians may have been more prudent. But Hitler was adamant that they take the former imperial capital. By mid-September, the writing was on the wall, though. The Germans would not take the city in 1941. Having won the battle for Leningrad, Stalin recalled Zhukov to Moscow, and Zdanov prepared the city for siege.